right. Well, good morning. Welcome once again to FBC. We're so glad you're here. My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors, and if I haven't had a chance to meet you, just want to say I'm glad you're here. We'd love to connect with you. and want to invite you to pray with me as we get ready to jump into the message this morning. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you've made yourself known, and Lord, we think about the things that your word says about your word. We think about Psalm 19 that says, Lord, your word, your law, your precepts are perfect and radiant and right and true. And so, Lord, as we approach uh, the scriptures, we pray that you would just give us uh, open ears and eyes to receive uh, this truth from you. Would you guide our time in your word this morning? We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. Well, hey, I want to invite you to join me in Luke chapter 3. That's where we're going to be for our next Advent message. And while you're turning there, just want to reiterate what Darren spoke to just a minute ago, the Journey to Bethlehem event. We are so excited about it this coming weekend. And we have those four core commitments as a church family that we're talking about regularly, right? Worship, connect, grow, and go. And it's that last one go that uh, Bethlehem is really all about. It's an opportunity to go uh, into our community to invite people uh, who don't go to church, maybe haven't heard the Christmas story, or maybe have heard it kind of, but need to be reminded of it. We get to share the hope of the gospel and the message of Jesus with our community. And so we're so excited. I want to just again, thank Darren and Carlene and the whole Bethlehem team for their help setting this up, and for so many of you who are serving in various capacities to make this outreach possible. Thank you. Thank you for living out this fourth core commitment of our church to go, and we are praying that God uses this to reach people, the gospel would go forward. So we're super, super excited. Uh, For this morning, though, we're in our second week of our Advent Sermon Series that we've titled Prepare Him room where we acknowledge that this season of Advent is all about preparation, right? Right now, we're all getting things ready in different ways at home to celebrate Christmas. As we talked about last week, maybe you're preparing your decorations. Most of us maybe already have put up the tree and the lights and the ornaments and things around the house. Uh, You're preparing. Anyone traveling for Christmas this year? We're going out of town, a few people. Okay, so you're preparing to travel for Christmas, you're figuring out where you're going, when you're going, how long you're going to be there, how you're going to get there. You're preparing your travel arrangements. Maybe you're preparing again to host gatherings, having people over. You're preparing a meal or what to cook, or you're making cookies, or you're bringing your, your special Christmas bread or tamales or whatever it is you make. You're taking somewhere. Uh, you're preparing maybe to uh, get dressed up for Christmas Eve or take family pictures, right? There's all these different things that we prepare this time of year. But as we talked about last week, we want to make sure that we don't spend so much energy preparing in all these different categories, our homes and our clothes and our food and our gatherings without preparing our hearts to encounter Jesus this season. See, before any celebration comes a season typically of preparation, right? Think about uh, when you graduated from high school or college. Your graduation came after a season of 
preparation, study, and learning, and reading, and growth, then you celebrated. Or think about your wedding, right? Your wedding came after a season of engagement, where you were preparing to be married. Think about Easter comes after on the church calendar, the season of Lent, right? A season of preparation for the celebration of Easter. So Christmas comes at the end of, of Advent, after we prepare, reflect, uh, look at our hearts before the Lord, prepare in that way, then we're able to celebrate with a greater depth and appreciation for the season. And so that's what Advent is all about. We talked last week about how we prepare. Uh, one way we prepare is with faith. Right? We looked at the story of Mary the angel coming to her with the message that she will give birth to a son. And we talked about how this season we need to have our faith, our trust in God and in his power restored. This morning we're going to talk about another way to prepare our hearts. We're going to look at Luke 3 to do that, starting in verse 1. Let me read the first few verses for us. It says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iberea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. As we get started this morning, a couple things to notice. First, we fast-forwarded the story a few decades from where we were last week, right? Last week, uh, Luke chapter 1, we see what? The angel come and share with Mary, you're going to give birth to a son, you're going to call him Jesus, and he's going to be the Messiah who will rule on the throne of David. It's around the same time, right? uh, an angel came to visit uh, Zechariah and told him that miraculously his wife, Elizabeth, will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and he will be John the Baptist. So we have Mary pregnant with Jesus in Luke chapter 1, and we have Elizabeth pregnant with John the Baptist. And so Jesus and John the Baptist go way back. They were buddies from the time in the womb, okay? And now in Luke chapter 3, you see they're all grown up. And John the Baptist, out of the womb now, walking around, and his public ministry is going on in Luke chapter 3, and he comes before the ministry of Jesus to prepare the way. Now, notice also in the text Another few key details. Look at how Luke sets the stage for the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, you saw all these little details. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, hey, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iberia, and so on, uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And then, after all these details, he starts to talk about ministry of John the Baptist, and then the ministry of Jesus right after that. And this is important to notice because sometimes when we hear the Christmas story or the beginning of the Gospels, 
it can sound so mythical or uh, like a fairy tale, like some kind of fanciful story, right? There's uh, angels visiting and speaking, uh, the message of a virgin birth. There are all these amazing details that sometimes people will hear them and think, well, it's a nice story. And sure, we like the presents and the season's great and all, but it, you know, it didn't really happen. Are these true events that we're talking about? A lot of people will put this story in the category of fairy tale or myth. Well, let's think about that for a second. When we think about the category of myth or fairy tale. How do those stories usually begin? Yeah, usually with some, hey, once upon a time, you know, somewhere this happened, or, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you know, things like that, where it's clear that the authors, hey, we're not trying to, you know, detail for you real historical events and timelines. Simply, hey, here's a nice story that we enjoy. But when we come to the Gospels and we read about the story of Jesus and his life and his birth, what do we find? And in Luke chapter 3, at the start, we find all these details as John the Baptist comes on the scene. Hey, here's when it happened. Tiberius Caesar was reigning in his 15th year. Pilate was governor. Herod was ruling in Galilee. Caiaphas was the high priest. On and on. All these things are rooted, you see, in history. Real people. and Real rulers. Names that people would know. And so the authors of the New Testament are making it very clear. Hey, we're not making this up. This isn't some myth that we just kind of developed somewhere. These are real events. Real people. A true story. Something that actually happened. So it's key for us to see in the New Testament. Now notice, it's in that context that John the Baptist comes on the scene. What does John do? Look at verse 3. He, John the Baptist, went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So before Jesus comes on the scene, we have John the Baptist. And his role, according to the text, was one of preparation. Getting people ready to experience Jesus. Now, if you were with us uh, months ago when we were studying the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we saw John the Baptist. He comes on the scene and he's preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And his role actually is referenced in all four Gospels. Okay, so here we're in Luke 3. He's on the scene in John chapter 1. He's also in Matthew chapter 3 and Mark chapter 1. So all four Gospels uh, precede the ministry of Jesus with John the Baptist coming on the scene. And John the Baptist is essentially saying, hey, everybody, listen up. Someone really important is on the way. God is about to do something really big, and I want you all to be ready for it. Now, I, I'm not from England, and but I do watch a little bit of British television. So there's a saying in England, I'm told, I've shared this before. They say, everywhere the queen goes, she smells fresh. Do we have any British people? That's true enough. I'm not making this up. Everywhere 
the queen goes, she smells fresh paint. Why? Because people go before the queen and tell people, hey, the queen's coming, and we want to make sure things are nice when she's here. And so we need to clean up this old place, put a fresh coat of paint around, straighten things out, make sure that when she arrives, it looks nice. We don't want it to be a mess here when she arrives. Let's get ready for the queen's arrival. It's a, it's a similar idea here with John the Baptist. Like, hey, the king is coming. And so let's make sure that we are ready when he does. You notice the connection to the Old Testament probably in the text, right? In verse 4, as John the Baptist is saying, it says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Referencing the book of Isaiah. It says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. See, in all four Gospels, when John the Baptist is mentioned, so is Isaiah, the prophet, specifically chapter 40 of Isaiah. If you go and look at Isaiah chapter 40 and look at the context, the people of God are in exile. They're living away from home. They're living in Babylon. And they're longing for a return home. They're longing for their God to, to rescue them, to bring renewal. And it's into that context that God comforts his people with the word of preparation. I'm coming. The Lord himself will come. Get ready. Again, Isaiah 40, verse 3, I think we'll have for you. Quoted directly, a voice of one calling, In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So we're talking at church this morning about highways. They didn't come this morning expecting to hear about roads and highways but here we are it's almost as if in this text an event planner is routing a, a, a parade route make a highway for our God in the desert as if Isaiah is saying I want you to construct a royal highway for the king to arrive on he's on his way if Isaiah were writing this today, if John the Baptist was speaking today, perhaps the language he would put it in would say, hey, turn off all the stoplights, widen the roads. We don't want the king to be stuck in traffic on I-80 going to Sacramento. So why you add some lanes to that thing? Like do whatever you got to do. Fill in the potholes, flatten the shoulders, straighten out the crooked parts of the road. Build a super highway so that the king can come right into the heart of the city. See, in the Old Testament, it wasn't a given that roads would be functional and smooth. In fact, most roads in the ancient world were not paved and nice like ours, right? We, we drive on smooth roads all around town. That's just what we expect. But back then, that wasn't a guarantee. And so if a king or someone important was coming, they want to make sure they were on a route that was functional, with functional roads, so they could get where they were going and not have to go very far out of their way. And so... Isaiah, and John the Baptist tapping into the message of Isaiah, is using this image. The king is coming. This metaphor then of preparation for his arrival. Now, if you're checking with me, maybe you're saying, okay, fair enough. King's coming, let's get ready, sounds good. But again, question, how? How do we prepare for the king's arrival? Is it like the queen and we need to put a fresh coat of paint around everything and it's about cosmetics and interior design 
make sure things look really great on the outside or do something with our literal roads in our town? Like, is that is that what we need to do? Oh, we need to prepare our hearts. God is concerned about our hearts before him. Look again at verse 3. John the Baptist went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And so he wants the people to prepare their hearts with repentance. And maybe repentance is a, a scary word or a, a churchy word, a stuffy word, or a word that you're not as familiar with. So let's talk about repentance a little bit. Repentance, according to Scripture, is this act of turning, turning away from sin and towards the Lord, basically turning around and going in the opposite direction. And so if someone calls out to you, repent! I mean, stop going the way you're going, turn the other direction, and start moving that way. And to symbolize this in the text, you notice the people are being baptized as this picture of repentance, this picture of a fresh start, this picture of cleansing. And that's a remarkable situation in Luke chapter 3, because... In that context, typically the people who were baptized and in need of cleansing were Gentiles. Were the, the non-Jews, when they would convert to Judaism, they were the ones who would be baptized and washed and cleansed from their old ways. Now they were embracing the new way of God and faithfulness to him. And yet here we see all of the people coming out to John. As if he's calling all of them uh, to recognize their need for repentance, for cleansing. As if all the people had in some way, somewhere along the road, started to trust in things other than God. They started to trust in themselves or other people. They started to disobey God's word. They started to love other things more than the Lord. They started to be way, uh, behave in ways that did not honor God. They started to mistreat other people. That was a problem. John said, let's straighten this out and get ready for the Lord to come. See, repentance is necessary because our sin creates an issue between us and God. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin puts a strain on our relationship with God. Like any relationship, think about your relationships. It's a friendship. If it's a marriage, if there is unrepentant sin between you and another person, someone, let's say someone has wronged you, they've, they've hurt you, they've wounded you, they've offended you in some way, and they're not repentant. And they don't acknowledge what they've done. They don't seek your forgiveness. They don't stop what they're doing to hurt you. Then it's going to be difficult to live in harmony and unity with that person. Make it difficult if the sin, if the wound is not addressed. It makes it hard to be united. And so the same is true with our relationship with God. If we have sinned against Him and continue to walk in sin and disobey and offend Him, we don't address it before Him. And there's a relational issue there that we need to acknowledge before Him, confess, and repent. And the New Testament talks about how our sin 
affects our relationship with God. Of course, if we have not repented in the first place and trusted in Christ, then there's what? Judgment and condemnation and separation from God. But then even for those of us who are walking with Christ, if we walk in unrepentant sin, we hinder our relationship with God. The New Testament uses the language of, of quenching the Holy Spirit. God has given us the gift of his presence within us, the power of his Holy Spirit, and yet we can quench it like we can quench a fire. We can put out a fire. Somehow, somehow kind of hinder the way that he wants to work and use us. We can look at 1 Peter chapter 3, and it talks about our prayers being hindered. In that context, it's talking about husbands who are not loving and understanding their wives. Basically, if you're, if you're harsh with your wife and don't seek to understand her and love her, you will hinder your prayers. And I, I'm not going to listen to you while you're praying. Some serious words from the New Testament about how our sin affects our relationship with God. And so when we repent, we say, no, Lord, I'm going to stop fighting you and your ways. Repent. I'm going to embrace your ways. I'm going to welcome you in my Now, we have to be careful here, because it's possible that we misunderstand repentance, and we view it simply as a private matter of the heart. Sometimes we say, you know what, repentance is between me and God, and I'm convicted of my sin, and so at church, I tell God I'm sorry, and then I vow to be better, and leave it there. And that's part of it, right? Conviction in our hearts is part of repentance. But there's more to it. Think about it. In the, in the context of Luke chapter 3, John is preaching about, hey, get ready, the king is coming. Preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins with some pretty firm words. And we're going to see the people ask for clarification. The people coming, they're like, all right, cool. We hear you. Could you be a little more specific? What should this look like? Look at verse 9 of chapter 3 with me. Luke 3, verse 9. A little bit further from where we first read. It says, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, harsh, firm words from John the Baptist. Verse 10. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, they told him. Verse 14, then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Okay, so you see what's going on in the text. People are coming out to John the Baptist, hearing his message of repentance, his invitation to baptism for repentance, forgiveness of sins. And the people are like, okay, great. But, like, what should we do specifically? Like, what do you want us to change, you know, after this? And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say really anything that we would typically put in the category of, you know, spiritual or religious stuff, like churchy stuff. He doesn't say, I want you to, you know, pray more, or I want you to um, maybe go to temple more, maybe buy your pastor Starbucks, or, you know, he doesn't say, like, churchy, kind of spiritual sounding stuff. What does he say? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to share your possessions and your food with those who don't have any. I want you to 
not take more money, tax collectors, than you need to. So I want you to commit to honest business practices and justice and integrity in the workplace. I don't want you to extort people, take care or take advantage of vulnerable people. I don't want you to falsely accuse people. I want you to be content with your wages. So do you see what he's saying? Yes, repentance is about our hearts and conviction over sin, but it's also about our hands. And what we do and how we live and how we treat people. God doesn't want us just to come to church and then to feel guilty and convicted about our sin and then go out and do the exact same things we've been doing. He wants us to live a new life in Him. Repentance is about your heart and your hands. So I guess I want you to be convicted over your sin, confess it before me, and then I want you to go, I want you to stop being harsh with your wife. I want you to love her sacrificially. I want you to stop being impatient with everyone in your life and being grumpy all the time. I want you to stop mistreating your employees and, and manipulating people. I want you to stop lying and gossiping about people. I want you to stop looking at pornography. I want you to stop complaining about everyone in your life. I want you to stop ignoring vulnerable people in vulnerable communities. I want you to stop making everything about you. I want you to stop spending all your money on you. I want you to start loving people. You see, there's practical steps of repentance that God wants us to take. And so as we begin this Advent season, I invite you to encourage, or excuse me, I encourage you to consider in your life, what does repentance need to look like? How are you called to prepare with repentance? Be specific. And here's a temptation in a message like this, because we, we, we talk about this pretty often. It's tempting to hear a message like this and be like, this is a great word for Ted to hear. I'm so glad that he is here listening to this. Or she. Or you know, my spouse isn't here, but I'm going to go share this with them afterwards and make sure they know about repentance. No, the question is, what about you? What do you, what do I need to repent of? What sin is in my heart and in my life that I need to turn away from? What's getting in the way of my relationship with Christ and obedience to Him? What sin does the Holy Spirit want to bring to the light and free me from? And again, this invitation is not just, hey, you know, tell God about it in your quietness, your private uh, place of your heart. This conviction leads to action. It's that your heart and your hand. So what do you need to go and do differently with your life? There's someone you need to go and ask forgiveness from. I'm sorry. I've sinned against you. There's a situation you need to change how you're behaving. Right? If you're a Christian, there, there should be plenty of things that, that come to mind that you can look at your past and say, you know what? I wish I would have done that. I didn't sin in that way. I wish I would have done or treated this person that way. I know I, I've had to go back right, and look at my life with different people and, and call them or 
happens at Easter. Why is Easter? The same way as we were. She didn't begin there. That wasn't in line with uh, who Jesus is talking to Jesus. You know, some people like, I don't know where this comes from. Some people will talk up the idea like living without Christ. You know, you know look back and watch and know what you are. It's, it's like, who are these? Like, who, what are you talking about? No regrets, right? Like, I look back at my life and there's tons of regrets. We need to acknowledge that. Be convicted of the Holy Spirit of those things and go and make them right. Not to leave us in a place of condemnation, but to lead us to, to freedom and joy in, in who we are. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to repent for the first time. Like you've never turned from sin and self and towards Jesus and embraced the forgiveness that he offers you through his life, death, and resurrection. Paying for your sins. Maybe today's the day you need to say, I repent for the very first time of sin and my sin, and I need to turn to Jesus. Now, one of the reasons this can be hard for us, the topic of repentance, is because we fear, we fear that repentance or acknowledging our sin will mean that we're going to be out. If you look at kind of how the world works, like if you guys are familiar with the term cancel culture, what about cancel culture out in our world, and even within church sometimes, this will happen. Cancel culture, where people, you know, kind of the social media mob, or the mob, I guess in real life, the mob, um, will kind of come after people, like we're going to dig up your past we're going to find, you know, text messages from when you were 12 and emails you sent, and we're going to bring it out into the light, and then we're going to get you fired from your job. We're going to come after you and shame you, and no one's going to want to work with you or be your friend anymore. Have you seen that? People just get destroyed in uh, the public spotlight, publicly shamed, declared unclean, and people, people like love that. It's like a blood sport. Um, but and let me just say, too, like sometimes some of those things need to come to light. I'm not saying that like I want it all to remain hidden. Some of those things, abuse in the past, it's good that some of those things get, get brought to the light. That's a good thing. However, what happens is those on the right and the left, everybody's doing this, is we practice condemnation without any mechanism for restoration or redemption. Right? That's how the world works with acknowledging sin. It's like, let's bring it to the light. And then it's shame, it's judgment, it's condemnation, it's you're out of here and no one's going to work with you again or hire you again and we're just going to throw you out. There's rarely the hope of restoration or redemption or reconciliation. But notice, according to Scripture and according to the Gospel, repentance is for restoration and reconciliation. Right? We repent we turn from our sin. We say, that's not who I want to be. And in Christ, we're forgiven. And have the hope of healing and transformation and restoration. So we conceive repentance as, as a gift because of the gospel. But we're not just left in our condemnation. We're not just publicly shamed and cast out. As we sang about earlier, God takes ashes and gives So friend, think about it. Repentance is a good thing. I want you to see it as a gift in your life. 
we, we know several friends who have had major, and family members who have had major surgeries, like heart surgery or, or tumors removed or other, uh, again, major surgeries. And think about it. What you need to do often in a surgery is a surgeon needs to go in and take something out of you that's not supposed to be there. Right? There's a tumor, there's a, a failing organ that's you know, infected, and, and maybe kidney stones need to come out, there's clogged arteries in your heart. And so the surgeon needs to go in and take something that's not supposed to be there and get it out of you. In a situation like that, if you ignore the unhealthy thing going on inside of you, you're not going to get better. You're going to get worse. So you need a surgeon to come in and change you. That's what repentance is about. And I'm not going to allow this trajectory, this part of my heart, to continue in this direction. I'm going to confess it, bring it to the light, turn from it, and allow the Lord to come in and heal me, change me. So repentance is a gift. It leads to freedom and life. And again, because of the comfort of the gospel, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But we're not here because we all have it together and we're perfect people. We really wouldn't need a Savior, but we need one. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The text tells us Jesus came for what? To take away the sin of the world. It's incredible. He went to the cross bearing the wrath of the Father against all sin and evil upon Himself dying in our place so that we could receive life. So notice, he was the one who was cast out so that we could be brought in. He was the one who was publicly humiliated and shamed so that we could be forgiven and healed. I forgot where I read this. Someone put it this way. I didn't come up with it, but it's really accurate and helpful. We really have two choices when it comes to our sin. Either we can try to keep our sins hidden, unconfessed, not repent of them, and then Jesus will come and expose them. And we'll have to answer for them at his judgment. Or we can expose our sin, bring them to the light, and repent of them. And then Jesus, in his mercy, will cover us. Similarly, there's an old saying that says, the gospel comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comforter. But I just want to be really clear this morning. If you're, if you're here this morning and you're afflicted, meaning you're feeling conviction in your heart, you're feeling the weight of your sin, you're, you're weary and in need, and you're, you, know, you came in this morning like well aware of that, you didn't need anybody to remind you of your sin and your brokenness. That's you, then the gospel offers, offers you great comfort. Jesus opens his arms wide to you in love. He says, Let me redeem you. Let me heal you. Let me bring you. Be a part of my family. Send my daughter who trusted in me so she can come sit at my table. Let me remind you that he loves you and he has changed you. The gospel offers comfort to the afflicted. And yet, the second part of that, the 
looks uncomfortable. Meaning there are some of us that, that, that came in this morning, let's be honest, we're just way too comfortable in our sins. And we don't see it as a problem, and we need to be convicted by the truth of the gospel that we're sinners. In need of a Savior. In need of cleansing. In need of God's mercy. So the gospel, the message of Jesus, can convict us of our sin and then lead us to a Savior who will then heal us. I know this, morning, uh, this week, in preparing for this sermon, uh, Arlo, I'm preaching on repentance. And I know you're going to bring things up that I'm like, come on. Okay? So here we go. All right, let's go. And, um, and the Lord did reveal parts of my heart that, that I needed to one of those was uh, just when I was with impatience. I started to see how impatient I am when it comes towards people, when it comes towards my kids, other people. I just want my way. I want quickly. I saw how I was doing that. I said, oh, that's not who God made me. That's not the kind of man I want to become. I don't align with that fruit of the Spirit. So what would you change me? I saw the in my heart and my tendency towards comparison sometimes. Looking at comparison. Well, that person, look at what they're doing. Oh, I'm so I'm doing better than them probably. Or oh, that's really discouraging for me. And oh, that's not really that way. There's this pride and comparison in my heart rather than just in humility and joy, embracing what God's called me to do. I notice in my life distraction. I spend way too much time on my phone or fantasy basketball. Fantasy football, true story, ESPN, whatever, just like filling every idle moment with a screen rather than just like, why can't I just sit quietly before the Lord? So God brings these things to the surface and I say, okay, Lord, forgive me for that. I repent of those things. That's not who I want to be. And so, Lord, would you change me? So I imagine for you, there may be some things that you need to bring before the Lord and then, and then take steps, action steps. We have a chance uh, to respond as a church family by taking communion. Communion is a way that we acknowledge our need for a Savior. So if you have the, the elements, you can prepare those now. Again, it might take a moment. But see, in, in communion, we, we practice obedience to Jesus. He told his followers to remember him in this way by taking the bread and the cup acknowledging his uh, broken body on the cross for us, his shed blood on the cross for us, for our forgiveness. And so here's the deal. Sometimes we're scared that like people are going to find out about our, our sin and they're going to realize who I really am. And, but here's the deal. As a Christian, like step one is acknowledging that you're a sinner. So we already know about you. Okay? The cat's already out of the bag that you're a sinner and so am I and we need the grace God. And so that's what communion is about, is remembering we have a Savior. So friends, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll celebrate uh, Jesus' work on the cross for us. Father, we thank you for uh, this time now as a church family to practice uh, communion. We come to these elements just aware of our need. And Jesus, we worship you as our Savior who went to the cross for us. Your body was broken, your blood was shed. Thank you.
forgiveness of sins to all of those who receive it. Thank you that you redeem us. You don't leave us in a place of condemnation. You don't bring our sin to the light in order to shame us and cast us away, but in order to heal us. Thank you for your incredible mercy, grace, and patience. Remember the On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way, for supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance. 